0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Soaring bond yields. Today, it's the short end where yields are moving back up. The two-year back above 5%. The 10-year still at levels that we've seen last in 2007. It's certainly capturing our strategist's attention. Why this surge in particular has them worried about a stock market correction. And it's not just bonds pressuring equities ready or not we could be facing another government shutdown. Goldman says it's likely to happen in the coming months and what that means for the Fed this fall. Plus, the cost of dining out is still rising, according to the last CPI print. And UBS says one company has pricing power to spare. Could restaurants pass on potential increases to diners? We'll dig into all of that. But first, let's get the latest on these markets with Dom Chu. The Nasdaq's green again. It is
1: green. Uh, We're talking marginal moves because I think a lot of folks are watching for what's going to with NVIDIA tomorrow, and that's been the big kind of tech theme overall. The growth has been in that technology side of things, to Kelly's point here, and it is an outperformer with the NASDAQ composite at 13,517. It's only one-tenth of a 1% gain, but it is the outperformer on a day where pretty much everything else is slightly red. The S&P 500 is at 43.91, down about eight points, about two-tenths of 1% decline there. Uh, and just to give you an idea of the trading range we've seen up and down today, at the highs of the session, up roughly 19 points, down 15 at the lows. So kind of drifting in the middle of that range so far, but still on the negative side of things, marginally so. The down Dutch is 34,305, down 160 points, or one-half of 1%. Well, some of the retail earnings reports are definitely moving things around today. So thematically, it's still very much about retail earnings season. A very disappointing report from Dick's Sporting Goods and also a disappointing forecast. They're blaming, amongst other things, retail shrink. That is another way of saying theft for some of those declines that we're seeing there and some of the lack of growth that we saw in Dick's Sporting Goods. So Dick's Sporting Goods down about 25 percent. It could be on pace for its worst day ever as a public company. We'll keep an eye on that. Macy's report was a little bit more mixed. The earnings were generally good, but the outlook maybe a little bit to be desired here. Low is a mixed report there as well, but they affirmed their full year guidance and the S&P retail ETF down about 3% as a result, net net. So watch that retail space. And Kelly mentioned rates, the move higher in short term ones and the move slightly lower off cycle highs, I should point out, for the 10 year side of things. That 10 year note yields at 4.32%. Earlier today, we did hit about 4.36%, which would represent, again, the highest level for the 10 year benchmark Treasury note going all the way back to 2007. So. As we watch that short-term, long-term dynamic play out, rates continue to be a part of this story. Technology right now not feeling the pressure just yet from a cycle high in rates that we've seen at least near term. Medium term, Kelly, we've already seen a 5% pullback for the NASDAQ, so we'll see what happens here with NVIDIA tomorrow. I'll send things back over to you.
0: All right, Dom, actually, come on over, if you will. That 10-year yield is what's got my next guest concerned about stocks in the near term. Warning, last week's, week's drop in equities could be just the beginning of a correction. Joining me now is Brian Reynolds, chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. Brian, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. And you've been more sanguine about the market, I thought, for much of this year. I mean, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of maybe a ceiling as we headed through debt ceiling. And, but then we, we kind of wrapped that up, and, and it seemed like we were going to kind of go to open waters here. So, so what's, uh, is this rate thing that much of a concern?
2: I think it's a significant concern in the short term. Um, I had been on earlier this year saying that once the debt ceiling was finished, we would go back probably to the 4,400 area on the S&P. It ended sooner than we thought because the government almost ran out of money sooner than I thought. But we still got that move to 4,400, and then it overshot by a couple of hundred points. So now in the last month, it's corrected back down to that 4,400 area. The big concern has been this rise in bond yields. And that rise is concerning to me because people bought bonds earlier this year when banks started going out of business and depositors were taking their money out of banks. People bought treasury bonds. The activity in treasury bonds this spring was enormous. The 10 year yield fell down to about a 330. Then the treasury department earlier this month said they're going to issue a tremendous amount of debt to boost their cash balance. Partly because of the government shutdown that's coming and partly because of that, uh, 2025's debt ceiling battle. So that was a big shock to the market. Yields went up and we've gone from a 330 to a 430. At a time when people bought a lot of it at 330 they're looking at losses and perhaps margin calls. Hmm. That's why I think this has a little more to go on the correction side.
0: It's interesting. Dom, the other thing that caught my attention this morning is a little bit of the trading action in Schwab specifically, but the regional banks more broadly. And so the KRE is down almost three percent right now. Schwab's down about five percent, some cost cutting, maybe some other moves to kind of shore things up over there. But you wonder again if this is telling us the pressure on these banks from rising rates, another part of you know, piece of this puzzle, it's still there.
1: So to brian's point what's interesting about this is it's an issuance story right also you talk about issuance for the u.s government and trying to shore up its cash positions heading into an uncertain time in the fall uh schwab if if these reports are true and they are raising cash through a bond issuance are shoring up their cash positions as well you couple that with a shrinking real estate footprint. And job cuts that were not detailed, by the way. They just said they're going to target that 400 to $500 million in annual cost savings. Happy, yeah. Well, it's it's Well, it's, it's basically being conservative, right? All, all, uh, many of these banks maybe learned a little bit of a lesson earlier on this spring. And then all of a sudden now, with the market behaving the way that it is, are feeling like maybe this is a good time to batten down the hatches just a little bit more. So with Schwab, this is also a scenario where this is a bank that was caught up in the maelstrom, that was that regional bank crisis, and it escaped relatively unscathed in that there are still wounds that they're licking. And this is perhaps just a bit of a lesson on how they're going to kind of make sure that doesn't happen again.
0: And and Brian, there's people kind of going through balance sheets, trying to figure out when some of the high cost debt people have been relying on to get through this crisis is going to come due and they're going to face some rollover issues. Obviously, that same problem is kind of vexing corporate America. And you're just saying, look, let's not forget perhaps the retailer institutional investors who gobbled up those bonds earlier this year and are now facing losses.
2: They're facing losses, but they've also been sitting on their hands for two years. Um, they haven't done a lot of corporate bond buying, and now with higher rates, that could attract them.
0: Brian, let me ask you about it this way. We'll talk in a moment about government shutdown and everything, but what would you say then is, is for you expected with stocks for the remainder of this year that we're heading in, in a down range? I mean, it's, like you said, you thought maybe the last 5% was the start of a 10% down move.
2: Yeah, well, I think this correction has a little bit more to go because of how many people bought bonds at low yields and are now facing high yields and potentially margin calls in Treasuries. But the good news is that the issuance is going to stop relatively soon. The Treasury has indicated they want to boost their reserves by about $400 billion between now and the end of December. But most of that's going to come in September. So I think we're closer to the end of this issuance panic than we are to the beginning of it.
0: And if we're closer to the end of the issuance panic, what does that mean for stocks, do you think?
2: I think that after a correction, I think they go back up because I think companies are going to issue more debt. Investors are going to buy that debt, and companies are going to use that money to buy back stock. Especially if we have more of a correction in the next month or so, I think that'll make stocks attractive to companies themselves.
1: Yeah. Dom, I, 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 what's curious as, as a as a market watcher who's kind of going to be reporting on this. One of the things that will fascinate me more than anything else, if that scenario were to happen and we see a dipper pullback and then kind of this reemergence from that is what the leadership will be. We know what the, the, the laggards were last year. It was tech that got crushed. It was comm services that got crushed, discretionary that got crushed. And and maybe intuitively, if there was a rebound like we saw this year, it's those sectors that are leading the way out. But the Magnificent Seven did a lot of the work, the bulk of it right now. The question becomes whether or not you see any kind of a rotation in leadership. We're already starting to see some initial transitionary moves in things like energy, for instance. Is that going to emerge again as one of those leadership groups? It's not nearly as important or significant to the broader market narrative. But it could be very telling if you start to see value type sectors and industries start to outperform again versus the same old meta platforms and Apple and Microsoft and Nvidia and everything AI oriented.
0: Brian, care to venture a prediction?
2: Well, there's another sector to look at and that's the companies that are doing the most buybacks. Stocks of those companies really underperformed starting with the bank crisis in March. Now they're starting to gain a little bit of momentum And I think if we start the buyback machine back up after Labor Day, which I think we will, I think those are the names that are going to be most likely to outperform.
0: And that all tells you credit markets are still open for business and this daisy chain ain't over yet.
1: But investors want more yield.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They might demand a little bit more uh, for now, that's for sure. Thank you both. We appreciate it today. Brian Reynolds with Reynolds Strategy and, of course, our Dom Chu. Let's get to the latest news out of Washington now, where my next guest is warning that we face a looming government shutdown. It could not only take a bite out of GDP, it could also affect what the Fed does with rates in the next couple of meetings. For more, let's bring in Alec Phillips, chief U.S. political economist at Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Alec, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So how much are people talking about this already, do you think? I mean, what, are we already at more than 50 percent odds of a shutdown?
3: Well, I think so. Um, I think it's more likely than not. I think the, the problem at this point is it's a little hard to tell when it will happen. Um, they need to pass spending bills by October 1st. But, you know, there's a chance that they could do a temporary extension. You look at shutdowns in the past. They haven't all started at the, you know, at the beginning of the fiscal year. Uh, on October 1st. But I'd say, you know, the, the I think the view in the market is that uh, the odds are rising, and I think the view in D.C. is that the odds are rising.
0: And one dot that we were just talking about with Brian Reynolds kind of connecting all of this is that the Treasury is trying to raise funds, it sounds like, in anticipation of a shutdown, and that's right now at least creating some upward pressure on yields.
3: So I think the shutdown is related to to the Treasury's financing needs in one way, which is that the deficit is very large. So the deficit right now is probably running a little bit more than $1.7 trillion, um, uh, you know, in terms of the current fiscal year. And that's, you know, that's a big increase over the prior year. And I think it's something, particularly along with, you know, the Fitch uh, downgrade recently, something that's gotten a lot of attention among particularly conservative uh, Republicans in the House. And so, you know, in addition to the usual uh, kind of controversial political issues, you actually have an underlying uh, disagreement on spending levels, which I think is just made worse by the fact the Treasury. Uh, is running the kind of deficit that they are.
0: How bad is the spending position? You know, when I look at the debt numbers in particular and you you sort of know, okay, it's going to be an overhang for five or 10 years, but maybe we can just Japanify our way out of it, right? Like, if interest rates go back to low levels, um, maybe there's no problem. If they stay up here, it seems like no matter what, we will face a problem.
3: So, You know, interest expense is almost certainly going to rise, in part just because, you know, even if the Fed cuts rates, even if rates normalize versus the historically, you know, high levels that we have right now, ultimately um, interest expense is still going to rise as what the Treasury pays catches up with the market rate. Because of course, you know, you've got five-year notes, 10-year notes, 30-year bonds that won't mature for a while. And when they do mature, they're gonna mature at a higher rate. So, we know that interest expense is gonna go up. I think where we're in sort of uncharted territory is the fact that it's likely to rise beyond, you know, probably the historical highs that we had in the late 80s, early 90s. And if, for example, you have, let's say, a 5% rate across the curve, when you have 100% debt to GDP ratio, you're gonna have 5% of GDP going to interest every year. And that ultimately, I think, is going to force some decisions. But it's not going to be an issue uh, in the next couple of years in terms of ability to pay or anything like that.
0: No, it's amazing how much a difference. If we could get rates back down to 1 percent, suddenly this seems like a much different. If only we could have a recession. I don't even know if that would do it when they look at the fiscal picture. Let me ask you this, Alec, when we talk about the government shutdown. Is the real question not whether it's coming because it sounds like it's probably coming, but whether it results in austerity? Do you think that that's likely if if the whole point is that you have one party pushing to kind of fix the budget or, or what is that outcome going to look like? How much could that affect GDP or, or deficit levels going forward?
3: Well, so I think, you know, you have the direct impact of a shutdown, which is not as big as one might imagine when you hear of the government shutting down. So, you know, federal spending is worth about 25 percent of GDP. But the part that's funded by these spending bills is about six and a half percent of GDP. And when they shut down the government, they're really just having some federal employees not come to work. That's about half a percent of GDP in terms of what uh, those people are paid. And so, you know, the direct impact isn't that great. We think it's probably, you know, for a week-long shutdown, maybe two-tenths of a percentage point off of GDP in Q4, assuming it happens in Q4. And then, it you know, it rebounds the following, so you actually add two-tenths in Q1. Um, you know, I think the bigger question over the longer run is, These sorts of issues, whether it's the debt limit, whether it's um, the the current uh, or upcoming spending debate, you know, whether eventually that will force some kind of broader fiscal consolidation. I mean, my take is that it probably won't, at least not uh, in the near term. And we have to look past the presidential election, maybe to the uh, expiration of the tax cuts in 2025, Hmm. maybe, you know, to the end of the decade when you really start to see the entitlement problem bite. Before we get something um, in terms of meaningful change on the fiscal trajectory,
0: it's, I could literally talk about this for 20 minutes, especially with the debate coming up this week. And we're all gonna, I think, minds will be very focused on it. Quick last question: As you mentioned, we could be heading into a situation that's even worse than the 1980s. What's the metric you're looking at um, for that kind of funding pressure?
3: Well, you know, I think um, the, the thing to look at at the moment is the fact that interest expense is rising. Now, at the same time, that the primary deficit, so the actual sort of operating deficit of the federal government, is actually falling a little bit. If we see the, you know, what you can think of as the operating deficit or the primary deficit x interest, if you st- if you start to see that rise, then that essentially compounds the problem of mm-hmm. interest expense. And I would say, you know, while we generally have a pretty sanguine view on the near-term outlook for for Treasury financing, uh, the trend over the last few months has been surprising to the upside in terms of the actual deficit uh, that the government is running.
0: Oh, wow. So like you said, that that's kind of the, the, the near-term indicator for how much worse these problems could all get if that doesn't kind of turn around quickly. It's going to be a rocky rocky one, I think, for you guys in your neck of the woods in the next couple of months. Alec, thanks so much for previewing it for us. We appreciate it. Thanks. Alec Phillips with Goldman Sachs joining me today. Coming up, shares of Toll Brothers are up 52% year to date. Will its earnings provide more fuel for the rally or snuff it out? We'll talk about that. Plus, Urban Outfitters shares have done almost as well this year, up 46%. We'll preview them both and see what Foot Locker might also say about the shrink problem in retail, which is pummeling shares of Dick's Sporting Goods today. Plus, a pricing power play tied to a turnaround in a segment of food inflation. This stock getting an upgrade to buy with one firm betting its margin headwinds will soon be tailwinds. If if you think you know what it is I don't think anyone's guessing this one today but if you do tweet me at Kelly CNBC we'll reveal it a little later this hour as we head to break let's also get a quick glance at markets Dow's at session lows down almost 200 points or half a percent and the Nasdaq has also turned negative along with the S&P Russell 2000's similar decline and the 10-year note 432 we're back after this Welcome back, and it's time now for Earnings Exchange. We'll hear from a major home builder plus a couple of retailers with very divergent fortunes this year. Today, the XRT retail F, ETF is actually having its worst day since May after shares of Dick's are down 24% on their earnings miss. Uh, XRT overall is down almost 3%. Let's see what it means for Foot Locker, for Urban, what they might tell us. Here with our trades today is gradient investment portfolio management consultant Marianne Montaigne. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you, Kelly. It's great to see you again. Let's start with Foot Locker, which is on pace for its second worst month of the year. And there have been a lot of them. Uh, it was down 40% in May, driven by last quarter's earnings. Profit margins have been battered by shrink or theft and high promotional activity. And the company is in the middle of a reset that involves closing 400 locations.
4: Marianne, are you picking this one up for a turnaround? Now, this is a trading vehicle. It's not really a long-term hold, which is what we at Gradient are more interested in. And I think until the municipalities and the states get tougher on crime, they've they've got a reverse course from recent years, then uh, this is a company that's quite vulnerable to uh, the mass grab and and go. Uh, But just given the Dix report today and the general lack of interest in apparel, uh, especially casual-type apparel... Uh, we'd just stay away from this name. All right. And calling for, you know, kind of more vigilance all around for some of these retailers who are affected
0: by shrink. Foot Locker shares, by the way, down 4% today in anticipation of these results and after what we heard from Dix. Let's move on to Urban, which is the owner of Urban Outfitters, Free People, and Anthropologie. And it's also on pace for its worst month of the year, but still up 45% since Jan 1, not too shabby. Investors are watching how much pricing power, how much price increases the consumer can handle and how well Urban can manage inventory coming out of the Last uh, of the gluts we saw last year, Marianne. Would you be a buyer? I'm I'm thinking no if you think no one's buying apparel these
4: days. Well, again, it's uh, a quarter that would have easy comparisons. And I think they've been telling people that uh, sales have been accelerating as the quarter progressed. But it's really about the outlook. And I think we're going to have some of the uh, tailwinds turning into headwinds here uh, they've been doing very well on the special occasion and the vacation type of apparel. So I don't expect uh, the, qu- the past quarter to be an issue. But um, with that run up, I think the shares are, are fully priced and I would not be a buyer here. Not a buyer. But I see what you're saying, that it, the, the bigger concern would
0: be the athleisure. You know, <laughs> we're all trying to get out of the sweatpants and into something a little more fancy. We have. Yeah, that will help Urban perhaps. Uh, Still not a buyer of the stock. So let's leave retail behind. You don't want it. Uh, Let's see about the home builders and Toll Brothers in particular. Um, This sector has been red hot, but Toll is looking at its first negative month of the year. After all, we're near 25 year highs in mortgage rates and 25 year lows in housing supply. And builders are trying to look to alleviate prices for buyers. Uh, What do you do with the with? Well, I'll ask you for Toll in particular here, up 52 percent since Jan 1.
4: Yeah. Again, it's doubled since uh, its lows in 2022. And it's facing a period when affordability for homes is very low. Uh, if you look at um, the mortgage rate of 7.25 percent last week, and you look at rising prices, um, the the odds are, again, we're facing headwinds here. Um, if you look at the overall macros, we're looking at uh, continuing jobless claims to start going higher versus lower by a great amount the last three months, um, along with those um, uh, payments that are going to have to be reinitiated on student loans, that that's pretty b- big macro headwinds. Uh, the company's been augmenting or helping out the buyers on the interest rate side, but I think that's only going to cut into margins. And then if you look at the indexes from the National Association of Home Builders, you will see that the... Um, Uh, the uh, um, new home sales index dropped six points to 50. And even more telling is the traffic for new home buyers has dropped six points to 34. So uh, we don't own toll in our any of our portfolios. And uh, we're not not about to start right now. All right. Maybe we'll bring you back for a different week of earnings. You know, see if we can get a few few
0: more (laughs) names in the mix that you like. Marianne, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Marianne Montaigne with Gradient Investments. Now let's get a quick check on shares of NVIDIA, which are also about to report. They're down 3% today after soaring to an all-time high this morning, and they're coming off that 8.5% pop yesterday. They're, they report tomorrow after the bell, and a new piece in the Wall Street Journal asks whether NVIDIA is the new Tesla. certainly feels like it, with traders collectively placing more than $100 billion in options so far this year, according to SIBO. That's more than Amazon Meta Alphabet Uh Apple, she said, Microsoft, and Netflix. 60% of that amount is tied to call options, which are bets that the rally will continue, even as the stock is trading at 51 times forward earnings and 240 times trailing earnings. Can NVIDIA post growth as shockingly impressive as they did last quarter, enough that these bets will pay off? We'll find out tomorrow after the bell. Coming up, U.S. credit card debt stands at a record high, topping a trillion dollars last quarter. But now delinquencies are on the rise, and they're taking corporate America by surprise. Here's Macy's CFO, Adrian Mitchell, on their earnings call this morning.
3: We experienced an increased rate of delinquencies within the credit card portfolio across all stages of age balances. The speed at which the increase occurred for us and the broader
5: credit card industry since our first quarter earnings call was faster than planned.
0: So is that just a Macy's problem or not? How healthy is the American consumer? We'll ask the CEO of Primerica, who's out with a new way to measure the middle class and how they're doing. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. A new survey shows just how much ground middle-class Americans have lost in recent years since the pandemic. It's an angst being captured in viral social media videos railing about soaring rents. And in the surprise hit song, Richmond, North of Richmond. My next guest now can put some numbers to it. He says six years of purchasing power was wiped out in 18 months during the pandemic. But now we've been able to claw back almost all of that loss in recent months. Joining me now to discuss the inaugural Household Budget Index is Glenn Williams, the CEO of Primerica. Glenn, it's good to see you again.
6: Thanks, Kelly. Great to be back with you.
0: What prompted you guys to create the Household Budget Index? It's almost like the misery index we used to hear about, but kind of on a micro level.
6: It is, we have had good success with our financial security monitor that you and I have discussed before, which each quarter gives us some insight into the financial attitudes and perception of middle-income families. But we felt like we needed something that was more precise regarding their purchasing power to really be able to serve them well and give them advice. And so uh, along with our economist consultant, we created the Household Budget Index, which measures purchasing power. It's sort of the math behind the perception. Uh, And it does tell a very interesting story. It tells that there's some good news as it appears that uh, increase in costs, as we know, or inflation has started to ease a little bit. It's still going up, but not as fast. And purchasing power is improving because our earned incomes are increasing. But at the same time, it's been quite a roller coaster ride for middle-income families. They got a lot of ground to make up.
0: And let's show, as we have in the screen right there. Uh, This is indexed to, I think, the year 2019 for the 100 level. So there you can see Jan 19 is kind of the the starting point. Um, Things got a little bit better as the pandemic stimulus hit. Then they got a lot worse. June 2022, familiar to all of our viewers, is the month that gasoline prices peaked, the CPI rate peaked, and that, that household budget index fell all the way down to 85. So again, a loss of years of worth of purchasing power in just a few short months' time.
6: That's exactly right, and it has begun to climb back toward 100, several things to keep in mind. It's the monthly measure of purchasing power, so when you do get to 100, you can't take a victory lap. It just means that you broke even in that month. And so when you look backwards from July, 44 of the last 55 months, middle-income families have been deficit spending, which means they've either taken money from savings, which could certainly hurt their retirement years, or they bridge the gap with credit cards at interest rates very likely in the 20% plus range. And so that is a tremendous amount to make up. So, we've got to get well beyond 100 just to fill in that hole. And then the other perception or or view I think we should take a look at is uh, middle income families were at 100 in 2019, more than four and a half years ago. Their expectation would not be to be back at 100 four and a half years later. If you put a trend line on on that graph, you would probably say their expectations would be at 110%. Right. So, we've got quite a way to go to get to where we really need to be for these families.
0: And what does that tell you about the loss of purchasing power and kind of the, you know, that's why I found the comments from the macy's cfo this morning quite telling that all of a sudden they're seeing a little spike in delinquencies what do you think is going on here
6: I think it tells us that we have to be very careful when things begin to normalize, uh, not to underestimate the damage that was done and how much ground has to be made up. That's what we see as we sit with these families and try to provide financial guidance for them is they've got a big hole to fill or they've got a lot of debt to pay off. And so they've got to make real progress in their earned income to be able to make up that lost time. There is a, a gap there of multiple years that's almost lost time when it comes to, particularly to retirement savings.
0: Can your company, I know you guys offer different kinds of you know, life insurance investment products. I mean, is there a pitch here that you can do something to help them fill that gap? Or is this just a stark realization of what this kind of shape this customer base is in?
6: Well, it's clearly an eye opener, which I think is the first step in addressing a situation is to acknowledge how significant it is. Then we help these families, first of all, begin with budgeting, uh, which often is a reprioritization of their processes. Sometimes it includes some sacrifice, which I define as giving up something of value today to gain something of greater value tomorrow. So it starts with reprioritization, but then it's a systematic process over time of being able to save for the future systematically. It's not a a one trick uh, solution. It's something that takes it takes as much or more time to resolve as it took to create the challenge. So it's a systematic long-term process that we try to use to help guide these families.
0: Yeah, and I guess a, a part in common on this would be, you know, you, as you said, the biggest, the most important way they can try to make up some ground is through wages and labor market and all that. And, and there have been some good signs in that lately when we look at, you know, what unions are able to negotiate that kind of thing. Um, but if there's any signs of weakness there in the next six to 12 months, I, I you know, it, this is not a great starting point.
6: It's a very fragile place for these families to be, and they have to first attack, I believe, uh, the debt crisis, which goes right back to the credit card discussion you were just mentioning. Um, The first thing families have to do is work very hard to pay off that debt, particularly when it's in unfriendly interest rates, so that they can get back to even and start building some success from there.
0: All right, Glenn, thank you so much uh, for doing this here on the show with us and bringing this to our audience. We appreciate it.
6: Always great to be with you.
0: Glenn Williams, CEO of Primerica with the Household Budget Index. Over to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News Update. Tyler.
7: Kelly, thank you so much. Today is the last day. Teamsters can vote to ratify or reject the tentative deal reached with UPS. Results are expected to be released after 3 p.m. today. Now, if a strike were to happen... It could upend the holiday season and raise shipping costs across the board. Both sides did hammer out a deal back in July, which would increase pay and benefits for more than 300,000 workers. The FDA approved a vaccine for pregnant people to protect their babies from the respiratory virus RSV. The single dose Pfizer shot allows mothers to transfer antibodies to their babies, protecting them for the first six months. The company said an advisory committee will meet about the vaccine in October, and it should be available to the wider public shortly thereafter. And the NBA is fining Philadelphia 76ers guard James Harden $100,000 for his public trade demands. The fine follows a league investigation that found Harden made comments in an interview about not performing services under his contract unless he's traded to another team. He has, to put it mildly, Kelly, been very vocal about his distaste the general manager of the 76ers.
0: Yes. And, you know, we shouldn't enjoy following this drama as much as we do, Tyler. So uh, I I feel complicit. Uh, I'll see you shortly, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, here's your last chance to guess our mystery chart. This stock getting an upgrade to buy on a big bet its pricing power can survive a soft landing for services inflation and potentially see 50 percent upside to the shares. We'll reveal it next. Dows down 165. Welcome back. Eramark was the mystery chart, and congrats to Eric Soda, who guessed it. And we showed you that before the break, of course. The food service provider getting a boost today on an upgrade from UBS. The firm sees their profit margins growing two full points over the next year, despite the moderation in food service inflation costs, and says now might be the perfect time to buy the stock after its recent pullback. But does their optimism also mean restaurants could soon be passing along higher costs? Joining me now, the analyst behind this call, Joshua Chan. Joshua, good to have you here. Uh, let let me just ask with what prompted you to to make this upgrade today?
8: Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh our upgrade really is based on three drivers. Uh one, you see that food costs, while they're much higher than they were pre-pandemic, are pulling back slightly compared to the very high levels last year. And number two, uh Aero Market has actually been chasing inflation with pricing over much of the last two years. And we think this is the quarter when pricing finally catches up to inflation. And number three. Um, the stock has pulled back about 15% uh, over the last uh, month. And so we think that that there's an opportunity uh, for, this is an attractive opportunity for investors versus our $43 price target.
0: What does Aramark do? My understanding is they sell a lot of equipment to restaurants, that kind of thing. I mean, are those clients really going to be in the position to take, you know, pay, pay two points more for something this, next year than they did, you know, this year or last year in, in this kind of environment with inflation overall moderating and restaurant traffic soft? I mean, that's what we talked to Brinker about yesterday.
8: Yeah, what Aramark does is they, they, they run food and beverage operations at, at places like colleges and universities, mm. uh, healthcare systems, stadiums, offices, And so they ultimately price to the consumer. And so uh, they're simply still trying to catch up on the cumulative effect of inflation over the last two years. And so we're seeing some of that pricing pass through now. Um, And and some of these verticals are also more economically resilient when you think about colleges and university and healthcare. And so so we think they have the ability to realize this pricing uh, even as, as inflation kind of tapers off you
0: know it seems strange that the same company would do colleges and healthcare which are like two ends of the, <laughs> the food quality spectrum that we've all experienced. Um, are they the only one in your coverage universe who really stands out as being in a potentially beneficial position I mean are there, do you see headwinds across uh, I can't imagine they have a lot of direct competitors
8: Yeah they have They have some direct competitors uh, mainly good competitors out of Europe. Uh, we also see other uh, companies within the business services space that could benefit from moderating inflation. Uh, one example would be Cintas. They, they rent uniforms uh, to companies, and uh, obviously uniforms use a lot of cotton, and as cotton prices have, have moderated, uh, Cintas could be a beneficiary if we're thinking about moderating inflation as well.
0: All right, so disinflation, you think, we talk about it as being a headwind. You know, any time you see the kind of nominal sales grow slow, a headwind for the S&P 500, but you think you have some companies that could benefit?
8: Yes, yeah, that's right. Companies that actually provide the services where, where those, those are input costs, uh, could actually benefit from a deflationary or, or moderating inflation environment.
0: All right, Josh, thanks so much for, show, for us for for phoning in, for your time today, for all of it. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Josh Chan joining us from UBS. Still to come, regional banks getting hit with another downgrade, this time from S&P following in Moody's footsteps. Names like Valley National, Comerica and Key Corp all lower today. But independent business owners still have confidence in those banks, according to our latest survey. More on those findings next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the exchange. Small business confidence. We don't like this. It's back to the lows of last year amid deteriorating business conditions. This is according to the latest CNBC survey monkey data. And one of the biggest concerns is access to capital. Let's get out to Kate Rogers with those details. Hi,
9: Kate. Hey, Kelly, you said at our CNBC Survey Monkey Small Business Survey for Q3 out this morning, it did show a dip in levels of optimism among small business owners and some challenges around funding. Now, overall, there's been a decline in those who are confident in the U.S. banking system. Fewer owners said it was easy for them to access the capital they needed to run their businesses at 48 percent versus 53 percent last quarter. This is something that we noted during the regional banking issues that we saw earlier in the spring, but interesting that it is coming up now once again for for owners. The drop also concentrated among those who bank at larger institutions, according to our survey. Under half of owners are banking with larger banks. Two-thirds say they're with community or regional banks. But the ones that are with the smaller banks, Kelly, are saying it is easier to access capital, under 5% saying that was a challenge this quarter. Now, larger bank customers had a 10% drop in their ability to access capital quarter-on-quarter, so a much larger drop than the 5% we saw for the smaller banks. The data also show sentiment falling to 4 42 out of a score of 100, the all-time low level we saw exactly one year ago. There was also a dip in the share of owners who say that current business conditions are good from 40% in Q2 to 38% now. 15% said conditions were bad and about 46% called conditions middling. How much of that is tied to the financing situation that we're seeing here going on remains to be seen. Kelly, back that, over to you. That's really interesting.
0: You would have thought maybe it was harder for them to get capital from smaller banks if they were under more pressure from the markets. But no, it's the opposite it's the bigger banks where they're they're having a hard time is that right yeah
9: that's right kelly there was a 10 percentage point drop quarter on quarter in terms of how much harder it was to get capital from larger banks and a smaller dip in the regional and community banks of under 5 percent quarter on quarter. One other interesting thing, the NFIB had its own banking survey out this week and not as much concern there with regard to access to capital. But more owners were saying that it's just getting so expensive right now to borrow, of course, with these interest rates continuing to go up. Uh, And, you know, whether or not they want to take out money because they are concerned about the economy, maybe they don't want to invest because they're not sure their business will grow, whatever the situation, may be. Uh, their concern there was the expensive capital and not the ability to get it, which is also an interesting point. It's a great but You know, it's too bad
0: Annetta Markowska doesn't, you know, she's, she's gone to the buy side, But this was one of the things she pointed out six months ago, that it's all going to come down to what small business does with hiring and expansion. She's like, they were the ones that were all of the excess job growth during, but this is why we should all care so much. They were all of the excess job growth during the pandemic. And if that's starting to unwind now,
9: that's going to be a problem. And, Kelly, great point on that because that was one of the other things that we saw in terms of the overall confidence score. Uh, Fewer owners saying they expected their headcount to increase for the back half of the year. I think it went from 28% last quarter to 25% this quarter. So, again, not a huge drop-off, but it does, you know, kind of forecast some potential pessimism or concern about where things are headed, whether they're wanting yeah. to grow and expand or they're able to actually find the workers, right? It's always a double-sided issue it's there. It's definitely a warning sign to keep an eye on.
0: Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate thank it today. You. Kate Rogers reporting. Still to come, researchers estimate the Inflation Reduction Act could generate one near, nearly a million jobs per year for the next decade, or 10 million in total. But the CEO of one company is taking his own steps to shore up his workforce, waiving degree requirements. He'll join us to discuss that next. And as we go to break, take a look at the sector heat map with financials, the worst performer today for all of the reasons that you've been hearing about. Uh, Some downgrade problems, Charles Schwab cutting jobs and so forth. Utilities, real estate communication services are in the green as long term rates moderate a touch. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to the exchange. The transition to clean energy has impacted industries from autos to oil, even now garbage or waste. Republic Services is the second largest provider of waste disposal in the United States, and it's been transforming its business from simple trash collection to a full blown suite. Of environmental services. Last year alone, they managed 8 million tons of recyclables, recovered 2.5 million tons of materials like plastics, and avoided emissions equivalent to the annual electricity usage of 11 million homes. For more here, let's bring in Republic Services CEO John Vander Ark, who joins us from the New York Stock Exchange on the 25th anniversary of the company's listing. And on top of all of those accolades, John, I have Deutsche Bank saying you're an inflation hedge. And a safe haven. They, I just, you know, what am I? What am I? What's the flaw here in this story? I can't find one.
5: Well, we're a pretty strong business. I mean, we have always had a really high floor. Given we're not recession proof, but we're recession resilient. And then increasingly, uh, we're a place where you can see growth. So we've grown in a new. New way in terms of sustainable energy projects, landfill gas to energy, we're forward integrating into plastics. And so we've really taken a business again that still has that same high floor and we found new ways to grow.
0: Real quickly for those of us who feel bad every time we throw out the garbage, um, how much of that is being turned into energy? Not just your company, but I'm talking like landfills across the country. Is 1% of it being reclaimed or is the number much higher than that?
5: No, much higher than that. We have 60 land, we have 200 active landfills today. And we have 60 projects already, and we have another 67 in the pipeline. And so obviously, when you measure that based on volume, it's more than half of the those uh, sites by volume have one of those projects. And we're going to get to you know more than 75% coverage here over the next five years, which is great, taking something that would be uh, thrown away forever and using that to power the communities around them. It's great for the uh, economy, and it's great for uh, sustainability as well. Will you get some subsidies
0: or tax benefits from the IRA, or if anything, will that make it harder for you guys to compete because it advantages other sources of clean energy?
5: Uh, No, the the projects stand on their their own. We will have some IRA benefit associated with that, but these are standalone projects and we'll apply for the incentives along with others, but those aren't really dislocating the market.
0: Do you guys consume a lot of energy?
5: Uh, Yeah, we certainly do in terms of our vehicles. And so we have 18,000 trucks with the fifth largest vocational fleet in the United States. And about today, 20% of those trucks run on compressed natural gas, the rest run on diesel. Hmm. But we're moving aggressively to electrify our fleet. We think we're gonna be the first player in the vocational space at scale that goes electric. you know, within five years, about half of our fleet purchase will be electric vehicles.
0: Yeah, I mean, it all sounds rather investment heavy, but again, your shares are trading just off their all-time high and they've just, the the stock chart just looks incredible. Let me ask you about what you're doing to kind of find talent to hire and retain people. It sounds like one of the recent moves you've had to make is to even drop uh, degree requirements. What is it like these days? Is it getting any easier to fill spots? Is labor, labor market getting any more, any less challenging?
5: Yeah, we're certainly better year over year. We're down about 450 basis points in turnover. So we kind of peaked in the mid-20s, and we're down uh, just over 20%. We'd like to get that down another 100 to 150 basis points. But longer term, I see a world where we've really gutted vocational education in the United States, and we need more skilled workers. And so we are growing our own. We have backward integrated into driver education and technician education. Uh, but more broadly, I, you know, degree requirements and listen, education has been important for me and uh, many others, but it's not the only path. So we like to find people who are skilled through alternative routes, whether that's career advancement through, through vocational jobs or even the military is a great background. And we think that's just an advantage for us to attract more talent
0: in turnovers, improving. and We know the labor market's starting to get back towards normal. What are wage pressures like?
5: Uh, you know, wage pressures are starting to modulate. Uh, we certainly saw that over the last 18 months. Uh, wages going up and, you know, turnover rising associated with that, but we've really seen that come down. We'll start to anniversary that in the second half, and we think we'll have a more normalized level of inflation uh, going into next year.
0: What would be your personal, you know, I I look at your background and, you know, you've been at the company for your eight years, I think before becoming CEO a couple of years ago, Uh, you know, pretty decent pedigree. Uh, What are your own personal goals before maybe you turn it over and, and look for the next opportunity?
5: Well, really, in my 10 years, we've gone from being a garbage company to a waste and recycling company and now an environmental services and sustainability company. And, you know, my goal is to challenge every ton that goes into a landfill and think about could we do something different with that? Could we take it and reclaim it, repurpose it, reuse it? And so I really think people will see us as a resource and a sustainability company. And that would I'd love that uh, to be the legacy for my tenure.
0: All right. Not too shabby. John, thanks for joining us. How many people are down there to ring the bell with you?
5: We've got our top 30 people here, and they're really excited to celebrate our 25 years.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm sure that it will be a great experience. Thanks for joining us this afternoon ahead of that. Thanks, Kelly. John Vander Ark is the CEO of Republic Services. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.